So this is the truth. I'm standing on the pavement outside a squat, grey, three-storey building in the centre of Melbourne, three days after my arrival in Australia from the UK. It's late December 1973, and I have a job interview with the editor of Australia's most scurrilous metropolitan newspaper of note, The Truth, or the old whore of Latrobe Street, as she's widely known. I climb the stone steps into the newspaper building and take a wheezy old elevator to the third floor. Here in the shabby foyer, the receptionist directs me into the bustle and clutter of the Truth newsroom. I am approached by the editorial secretary, Pearl the Girl, who is dressed in a faux leopard skin trouser suit. I learn later her most important role is doling out Murdoch's magic carpets, the taxi dockets that send reporters speeding to jobs, or more frequently pubs, across the city, courtesy of the paper's owner, Rupert Murdoch. Go right in, says Pearl, gesturing at a closed door next to her desk. Mr. Edwards has someone with him, but he said to send you in. Paul Edwards is the editor I've arranged to see, but as, as I open the door and enter his office, I'm unsure which one of the four men gathered around a desk is him. Two of them are naked to the waist, wearing pig masks, and are arm wrestling across the desk. The other two muscle in as close to the action as their bulky cameras will allow. The smaller of the two wrestlers tips his mask back from his face and glances across at me. Adrian Tame, have a seat. This won't take long and I'll be right with you. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis and today we're joined by UK-born, Victoria-based writer and journalist Adrian Tame, talking about his new memoir, The Awful Truth, which chronicles his 13 years with one of Australia's most notorious tabloids. Once referred to by a high court judge as a wretched little paper, reeking of filth, injurious to the health of house servants and young girls, the truth was indeed many things, but as Adrian's memoir shows us, it was certainly never boring. Adrian, thanks so much for joining us today. That's a pleasure, Matt. So your tenure at Truth ended in 1986, with the magazine following suit a few years after, and then you began writing this book in 2008. Why did you decide that that was the time to write this book? Um, look, it's something that I'd always wanted to do. I, I, I figured that what was happening at Truth during the 13 years that I was there was was unique. Um, it was also wildly amusing at, at a lot of the time, and there were a lot of very great stories. And I toyed with the idea of writing something about it for years. I actually wrote that first chapter um, way before I wrote the rest of the book. It was something that I felt needed doing because it was a it was a form of journalism that was dying out and has now completely died out, I suppose. And I felt it it was it was it would be a good idea to put it on the record so that people could um, discover what was going on in those days. And the the media landscape of Australia and indeed the world has changed quite a bit since you started writing the book in two thousand and eight. Did those changes reflect in how you wrote the book over the years? Yes, I suppose so. After I left Truth, I went into public relations 
for a while. Then I then I got back into journalism as a freelancer and wrote a column for the Sunday Herald Sun for 12 years, etc. Um, and I was growing progressively more and more disenchanted with journalism. It was changing radically, as you say, and I felt that I didn't particularly want to be part of it. Mm. And part of the reason for this was that I, I felt that the old style of journalism, the foot-in-the-door journalism, where you had physical contact with people and eyeballed them, was disappearing. Most everything that, was, that seemed to be appearing in newspapers was either about coffee or um, some other uh, fashionable idea. And that most journalists that I maintained contact with were complaining that they rarely left the office. They did most of their interviewing on the phone and from PR handouts and so on. And I, mm. um, So yes, the landscape was changing radically and I wanted to reflect this uh, in what I wrote. And I suppose the epilogue at the end of the book is the um, it's the best example of that how I've tried or attempted to um, describe the way journalism ha- has changed during that period. Mm, that was actually one of my questions because there's a a particular sentence in that epilogue that sums it up really nicely, where you say the reason that fewer than one in twelve Australians currently bother to subscribe to the newspaper is because journalists are staying out of the pubs. Well. In the old days, I mean, for instance, if you if you had a country job and you hadn't been to the country town before, the place you always headed for was a pub. Hmm. Um, and quite apart from being able to check on what you were there for, other stories would, would regularly crop up just by chatting to people. And it was this kind of interaction between the journalist and the, and the, and the general public that quite often produce good stories. And I figured that this wasn't happening anymore. As, I, as I've just said, journalists were sitting on the telephone rewriting media releases and that, uh, those sort of things. They weren't, they weren't reacting with the public. And I felt that that was where um, the sort of journalism that I enjoyed practicing and enjoyed reading was happening, and it wasn't happening anymore. Mm. So, um, yeah, my disenchantment was growing. Nowadays, are there any publications or journalists that you think come close to capturing that same method that Truth had? I'm not sure about that. I, I mean, there are newspapers, obviously, that I admire, The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, not many more um, in Australia. Um, I don't know that there's anybody doing what Truth did. I, it became the, the, the kind of things that we covered uh, became the territory, as I say in the book, of things like um, women's magazines, shock jocks on the radio, uh, even television current affairs programs like a, like a current affair and so on. Yeah. Um, so what was once exclusive territory for truth became a, 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 a much more commonly practiced um, form of journalism. Um, but as far as today goes, I can't think of any publication or serious publication that in any way resembles what we were doing at truth. Mm. I, think it would, I think it would appear terribly outdated if somebody did attempt to, re- to repeat it now. And heading back to, to the writing of the book, you've written quite a few books focused on Australian crime, but this is your first memoir of sorts. How did it feel turning that journalistic gaze of yours inwards? Um, that's a very good question because it, it was a bit of a false start initially. When I, um, when I first 
firstly through my agent, managed to get a publisher, Simon and Schuster, for the book. I was asked to do a, um, well, very much a personal memoir, which included a lot more um, of my life in North America, and my journalism in North America and in the UK. And after I submitted this, um, Simon and Schuster came back to me and said, look, we've decided we don't really want a, um, a memoir. We want to concentrate on truth. So I then had to jettison all the stuff that I'd written, um, or not all of it, but a, a, a fair old chunk of it. I had to jettison that and, and concentrate more on truth. Mm. So, yeah, look, it was a bit of a, um, a turnaround because in the past, as you say, I'd written about the, um, the British A-bomb tests at Maralinga. I wrote a book on that in the, in the 70s, and I wrote a couple of uh, true crime books, The Matriarch and um, Deadlier Than the Male, about... Um, that was one was about a, a, a Melbourne crime family. The other was about women criminals. So I was writing about other people and writing about yourself. It's a very different form of journalism, and I, I, I didn't find it easy to begin with. And the the book is laid out in a sort of non chronological fashion, detailing specific events and stories over your thirteen year time at Truth. How did you decide what things to include and what you'd have to leave out? Well, that decision in many ways was made for me. I had two or three editors at Simon and & Schuster, and um, after the changeover from memoir to exclusively truth, or nearly exclusively truth, um, the whole chronology of the book was changed. I didn't particularly accept this to begin with. In the end, I bowed to the superior experience and knowledge of my book editors, and um, agreed with them that sprinkling stories in a non-chronological order around the book was probably just as effective as going from A to B in a strictly chronological fashion. As far as what I chose to put into the book and, and leave out, that was a that was a real problem, Matt, because I had an incredible amount of material. I mean, in 13 years, an awful lot happens. And it was not so much a search for material to fit into the book, but more a question of um, what to reject. And there are still a number of stories that I haven't told or, or haven't appeared in the book, mm. which, um, you know, in many ways I'd like to tell. Was there anything that you would have liked to include in the book, but you thought was maybe a bit, a bit salacious or a bit too over the top? Well... Not me personally, but I mean, there was one story about the bikers, for instance, that my publishers decided would, was so off-putting that they asked me not to include it. Oh. Now, I'm happy to relate that story if you want me to. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, it involved um, Phil Ackman, who, who was a fellow journalist on the paper, um, was the instrumental in engendering my interest in, in the biker community. And on his first... Uh, involvement with the bikers, he was assigned to cover a funeral in the Western District of Victoria, and his assignment was to travel with the bikers the 150-200 mile journey from Melbourne to where the funeral was being held. And during that journey, the uh, group of bikers, and there were probably the best part of a hundred of them, stopped off in a in a garage to refuel. And so there's a hundred bikers swarming around this garage, uh, and at the Bowser, right in the middle of this, this this mob of bikers, is a very small green car with four occupants inside it, and all looking suitably terrified at what's going on around them. And suddenly, one of the bikers jumped on the bonnet of the car, 
removed his penis from his trousers and holding it aloft, um, peed into the air a fine arc of golden urine, which he caught in his mouth and, and drank, swallowing the whole lot without missing a drop, while the four people inside the car looked on in absolute horror. Hmm. And uh, when he completed his task to wild applause from all of his colleagues, he leapt down from the bonnet and bowed ceremonially to the occupants of the car. Yeah, that's not exactly the portrayal of bikey gangs you get from the, from the news and the media. Yeah, look, I was in those years, particularly during the three or four years that I hung around the Hells Angels, I was quite fascinated, probably in a fairly immature or even puerile way, I was quite fascinated by the, the whole biker mentality. I, I found their complete aversion to any form of law and order or, or control of their activities um, absolutely fascinating. And getting to know a number of them, I mean, some of them were a lot more friendly and articulate than others. Um, some were quite dangerous to be around, others not so at all. But I... Um, yeah, I was pretty fascinated by their culture for a long while. Hmm. Do you think with that, that lawlessness that you described, there's maybe some parallels between the members of the Truth newspaper and those bikies? Yes, very definitely. I mean, we were regarded by the mainstream media as um, beyond the pale. Hmm. We, weren't re- we, we weren't regarded as real journalists, although... In many ways, uh, we were able to demonstrate that we had just as much, if not more, ability than the mainstream media. Um, quite often, when uh, there weren't too many times when we came in direct competition with papers like, say, the Herald Sun or the Age. Um, but when we did, we quite often um, scooped them because it's a very much an easier uh, an easier task to phone somebody and say, "My name's Adrian Tame from the Age." And you normally get a, you know, a, a fair degree of cooperation. When you ring up out of the blue and say, my name's Adrian Tame from Truth, you quite often got a, either the phone slammed down on you um, uh, or, or a fairly hostile reaction. So it was a lot harder to work for Truth than it was for the mainstream media, a lot more difficult. And I think that was, uh, that was why perhaps we felt that we were... Um, well, we had a bit of a siege mentality. And, and yes, your question about whether there is a similarity between our philosophies and those of the biker community, in, in certain areas, you're right. And is there a, a story that you covered over your time at Truth that you're most proud of? Um, well, there were the big ones, like the um, discovery of, of Petrov's whereabouts. I was, I was pretty happy about that one. Um, any journalist would have been. I mean, mm. he'd been... He'd been kept in secret away from the uh, from the public gaze for a couple of decades when I found out where he was and confronted him. Well, the other two would be the um, collapse of the um, of the Tasman Bridge in Hobart, and um, there's a whole chapter on that in the book explaining how by losing four hundred dollars worth of expenses at the casino. I managed to turn that into a very lucky break and got an exclusive interview with the captain of the um, ship that ploughed into the bridge. And the third one, I guess, would be um, the discovery of um, Sir Robert Menzies' ashes in a tin shed at the um, at the necropolis in Springvale. Those would probably be among the um, stories of which I was most proud. Hmm. For a bit more background on the book, it describes how you worked in the UK and Canada as a reporter before you moved to Australia to continue your career. How did print journalism in the UK and Canada compare to that of Australia at that time? Well, 
Um, if you're asking me how did the UK and Canada compare with truth, uh, there, there was a huge difference. Yeah. And it was a, a real culture shock for me. I mean, I'd, I'd worked for mainstream newspapers in both the UK, where I worked for um, provincial provincial dailies and also a spell in Fleet Street on a sports agency. And in Canada, I worked for the Vancouver Sun, which was very much a mainstream daily newspaper. Um, and there was nothing like truth in either of those two countries that I was aware of, possibly in America, but not in Canada. And I don't, I don't think there was anything quite like truth in the UK. So a big difference as far as, far as journalism in general, as opposed to journalism at truth, um, I guess there wasn't a great deal of difference. I mean, it was a, it was the same old business of um, of going after the story. You mentioned at the start of the book uh, when you first began working for Truth in 1973, you make the point that newspapers were booming. Are you able to explain a little bit more about what was happening in print journalism at the time? Well, I think because there were less alternatives. I mean, there was there were no mobile phones, there were no, um, well, there were computers, but they were very primitive. Mm. I, I don't think there was any internet or um, World Wide Web in, uh, in the early 70s. So there was less choice for readers. I mean, there were magazines like New Idea, TV Week, and some of the more flippant magazines, but I, I, I think truth was truth was unique in terms of what, what areas it went went into and as i said earlier it's gradual the evolution of its demise came as a result of other um media outlets coming into the same territory and occupying the same territory that truth once had exclusively to itself and the the paper was owned for a time by rupert murdoch i was curious what your perspective on murdoch was like back then what did you think of him well i was awe-stricken by him as everybody was Mm. um he had a, an aura about him. I mean, he would he would arrive unannounced in the newsroom. Most of the, my contact with him, I was news editor, so he would ask me what sort of stories we had for that day's paper. And he had an immediate grasp of of, of, of news and all of the various roles involved in the production of a newspaper. When Truth changed from being a bi-weekly to a daily during the a period in the 70s when the Herald Sun went on strike for it's less than a week actually we only put out about three or four daily editions but Murdoch came and worked alongside us and he did everything he phoned up for stories he wrote stories he subbed stories um, and he demonstrated that he had a thorough knowledge of every step in the in the process of a newspaper's production mm. he was also full of energy um, during that three or four days uh, none of us had more than a couple of hours sleep a day as far as we could work out Murdoch didn't have any sleep but there was another there was another side to him Matt at the end of that period he stood on a desk in the truth newsroom and I swear there was a tear in his eye and he said I'll never forget any of you for what you've done you've you've gone way way beyond the call of duty and I'm very proud of all of you within three months those people who he would never forget seven of them were made redundant and Mm. I attempted to intervene by phoning Brian Hogburn, who was at that stage his right-hand man in Sydney, and saying, look, Rupert um, said he'd never forget us, but he's made made half of us redundant. What's going on? I was told in no uncertain terms that if the boss wanted it to be that way, that's the way it was going to be. I always felt that there was a an unhealthy... Um, form of almost adulation among his, his senior lieutenants and it, it 
it was a strange phenomena and one that I, I found a bit distasteful, to be honest. I mean, he was a, and is obviously an incredibly talented newspaper man or media mogul. And I guess in a way I was fortunate to see him in, in the early stages of, his, of the evolution of his career. And um, for my last question, as an extremely experienced journalist and reporter yourself, do you have any advice for anyone listening who is looking to make their mark as a journalist? Yes, absolutely, and I guess it's covered in the epilogue to the book. Hmm. Get out of get out of the office, meet people, mix with people, have an interest in people, develop the ability to talk to people. You don't get anything out of somebody unless you can achieve some form of rapport with them. It's no, I mean, I sometimes I, I'm horrified when I see or, or on television. Um, journalists approaching somebody uh, for an interview and they they go in like a bull at a gate which is not the way to do it mm. the first thing you must do as a, as a journalist interviewing somebody who may be reluctant to speak to you is to get on side with them as I say achieve some form of rapport and if you're sitting in an office on a telephone permanently you're not going to do that so uh, yeah my, my advice very simply get out of the office meet people mix with people you'll get more stories and you'll find find it easier to get information out of people. Mm, hopefully there comes a time soon where people can start to do that again. Yeah, yeah indeed. It's pretty difficult at the moment. Um, and, and the other thing, I guess, is, as well, is use your own um, initiative as a researcher. Don't rely on, on the internet because quite often, as you well know, the internet is full of inaccuracies. And the business of just repeating what you find when you Google something, um, it's not a good practice. You need to double check facts and you need to be sure of your facts. And simply taking them off the internet is not a way to be, to be sure by any means. Mm. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today. That's a pleasure, Matt. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> 